How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 117 of X-Last, where we're just about a third, I think, a third of the way through our big 22-pot crossover event here. Uh, let's get right into it. This is uh, New Mutants, volume 4, number 13. Had a December 2020 cover date. The story's called Exoswords, chapter 7. Written by Ed Brisson with art by Rod Reese. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Beasel White Zabolski, cover price $3.99, and went on sale October 14th of 2020. And yeah, my, my chair is still a little squeaky. I haven't, uh, I haven't thrown this one out the window yet. So apologies if, I, uh, if my squeaking is uh, distracting. But let's get into it. Uh, we open with magic. Now she's meditating, and it's not entirely clear if she's still sitting on her sigil, but doesn't really seem to be. She's overlooking a cliff. Uh, There's a nice sunset in the horizon there. It does answer one of my questions of whether or not the you know chosen champions are actually able to leave their sigils, because uh, well, Magic's not going to spend a whole lot of time in her sigil today. Anywho, she uh, places a cold Cyclops so that she can get in touch with Kid Cable to let him know that he and his Light of Galador will be needed for the contest of champions. And they're still mucking about with the sword satellite thing, which I'm assuming we're going to be seeing a whole lot more of next episode. Now, Cyclops assures Ilyana that they'll be back as soon as possible. And if I were a betting man, I'd say probably by the last page of next chapter. Probably. Okay, double page spread of creds, followed by our roll call. We got Cypher, Magic, Warlock, Krakoa, Charles Xavier, and Exodus. Back to comics, and we are witness to a chat between Doug and Warlock. Now, Warlock, I don't know if it's worth noting or not, but I will anyway. Uh, he talks with a very Deadpool-y yellow, you know, word balloons here. Uh, now, the talk is kind of interesting, but at the same time a little bit redundant, at least to me. First, uh, we get mentioned that Warlock being present on Krakoa will no longer be like the worst-kept secret in the X-Books. I guess Doug figured that all of his friends would just assume he sprouted a techno-organic arm or something, and that Warlock wasn't actually there. I guess there's something to be said for patronizing your pal. Um, of course, Magic already knows that Warlock is here. She did see him do the thing with those uh, those scarabs or beetles or whatever the hell they were over in Giant Size Nightcrawler. And I'd assume pretty much everyone knows, but uh, they're just being nice to, uh, to poor Doug. Now, the bit that's a bit redundant to me, and this might just be one of those Chris problems that we encounter every now and again. Um, to me, Doug Ramsey has kind of turned into, like, the mutant's answer to Aquaman. Now, hear me out here. Now, Aquaman was looked at by the layperson as kind of a jokey character, right? He's the one who can dir her talk to fish, 
right? While the rest of the Justice League would just go out and fight and save the world, Aquaman's the, oh yeah, by the way, go talk to the fish, to her. Now that became so ingrained in his presentation that I feel like for the past, I don't know, quarter century or so, it feels like every Aquaman story is about showing how he isn't a joke character. You know, he's become just so ingrained as this character that people look at as a joke that it's like this uphill climb to legitimize him. Every story is about, like, ooh, see how powerful he is? Ooh, ooh, see how, see how strong he is? See, see how he can do more than just talk to fish. Even though, you know, the writers of Aquaman will always mention that he talks to fish because LOL random. I don't know. Now, Doug, over here, he's got these, you know, not-so-useful-on-the-battlefield powers of translation. You know, if this were the real world... I mean, he'd be a very useful fella, but on the battlefield, you know, wielding a sword? Eh, not so much. Now, we know it, and we've heard it, and we've all joked about it. And it feels like, for a while now, if not his entire existence, any time a writer focuses on Doug, their main goal is to establish that there's more to him than being a translator. Sometimes it's through really imaginative use of his power, and sometimes it's showing that he actually has more skills than meets the eye. And we'll talk a little bit more about those later. It's not a bad thing. I, I mean, don't get me wrong here. It's just something that's been used to the point where it's become, at least to me, a very, very visible and very, very obvious trope. Whenever there's Doug, it's all about showing that he's more than what he is. It's the Doug Aquaman thing that I, uh, that I just find to be a bit redundant. Um, anyway... Warlock turns into a sword for Doug to wield, and as our cover suggests, and this cover, I believe it's Rod Reese who did the cover, but I don't like it. I've been staring at this cover for months now, and it's just like, ugh, don't like it. But the cover does suggest that he is sparring with magic, and that's exactly what happens, and it does not go well for Doug. Now, as Ilyana pounds him into the ground, she also pounds us over the head with a bit of exposition. You know, did you know that deaths in other other world are like permanent deaths? Just making sure you knew that because uh, we, you know, we might have heard that a few times. From here, an info page about the Soul Sword, and we all know what the Soul Sword is. But let me tell you about the first time I remember hearing or seeing the Soul Soul Sword. Now, as I came into the X books, as many people know, was the early '90s. Ilyana was back to being a little girl. And like a year into my reading, she was the first casualty of the legacy virus. That's all I knew of her. So I didn't know from magic. I did know, however, that a whole lot of X-Fans seemed to be quite enamored with her. Now, my first Uncanny X-Men old back issues that I, you know, dug around the, the reader bins for back in the 90s were actually some tattered versions of the Limbo storyline. Like, probably Uncanny 160-ish or so. The one with, like, Belasco and Sim and Magic before she got the Soul Sword. I read them. I enjoyed them. But as I didn't live them, I still didn't quite see the fuss. And as a matter of fact, here in 2021, despite having read more, more or less 90-odd percent of everything with an X on it, and at the risk of having to surrender my X-Fan card, I still don't really see the fuss in Ilyana Rasputin. Um, now, to continue my little anecdote here, we jump to an issue of, of all things, X-Men Unlimited, probably around 1996 or 1997. I, I want to say 97. The story, which I don't remember, ended with a hand grabbing the Soul Sword. 
and uh, I've talked before about my time on Usenet. Usenet, the rack sex M, whatever the hell it was, uh, went nuts. They went nuts about it. People were going gaga with the idea that Ileana was still somehow on the table and maybe just living in limbo. And it was a whole lot of fun to see such excitement and even to read a whole bunch of like passionate armchair booking of the X-Books, like how do we make this work? At the end of the day, I think it was revealed that Amanda Sefton was the new magic or something, and I'm not sure how long that lasted, and I don't think she was used all that much, if at all, uh, in the role, but uh, that's something that'll always come to mind anytime I stop to think about the Soul Sword, so that's that. Um, Back to comics. Doug is in the Quiet Council table, and uh, Krakoa is pleading with him to find a way out of this fight. Now, if you remember, Doug is Krakoa's translator and de facto voice. Doug gets what Krakoa is saying, but feels, I don't know, maybe honor-bound to compete? Uh, he was part of the prophecy, after all. He was chosen, you know? He, you know, a guy's gotta do what a guy's gotta do. Now, Charles Xavier is present to witness this exchange. Doug asks what's actually gonna happen should Sinister and the Hellions plan to swipe the Iraqi swords not work. Well, Xavier ain't sure. This whole contest of swords deal is new to everybody. He just hopes that Sinister's plan actually works. I'm pretty sure it won't. Info page, the Hot Hive. Um, another kingdom of Otherworld, and this one seems like it's full of bee people? Or maybe I'm just profiling? I don't know. Back to comics, and we get back to sparring with Ilyana, and it's still not going all that well for Doug. Now, Krakoa gets involved, tangling Ilyana up in some vines, which... You know, might help Cypher here, but won't do diddly squat once he's in Otherworld. Magic and Doug sit to chat, and once again we discuss the threat and the stakes. Ilyana tells Doug that once the real fighting begins, to make sure he sticks as close to her as possible, and then she leaves. Doug isn't left by his lonesome for long, however, because he's next joined by Exodus. And Exodus has a, uh, I guess we can call it a proposition. He invites Doug to die by uh, wrapping his hand around Doug's throat and threatening to choke the life out of him. Uh, now, you see, there is a method to this madness, right? Uh, we do know that the resurrection protocols have been suspended, okay? So if Doug were to die now, Saturnine would have to uh, prophesy up a replacement combatant for this contest of swords. She might even choose Exodus himself for the role. Now, Warlock tries to help his self-friend, but Exodus is far too powerful. Doug declines the offer, and Exodus finally lets go. Now, as he walks away, he tells Doug to consider the offer for a bit, because he'll, I guess he'll always be willing to oblige uh, Doug the sweet release of death. Uh, next info page is the Warlock sword, and we know, we know what Warlock is, right? But let me tell you the first time I ever saw the guy. Now, as many listeners know, I came into comics via ElfQuest. Now, these were the Marvel epic elf quests, which, uh, believe it or not, I've actually got a show about, which hopefully once things get settled down in my real life, we'll be able to get back to. But uh, one of the coolest parts about reading elf quests this way was getting to see all the great Marvel house ads. And some of them were those uh, Bill Sienkiewicz drawn New Mutants ads, which left me feeling very uneasy, um, to the point where I vowed never, ever to read those stories. And... Uh, well, I mean, I have in the interim many times and probably will again, but as a, you know, scared rabbit eight-year-old, I did not want anything to do with these creepy characters here. And Warlock was among the creepier because it's like, what in the hell is he? 
really, really off-putting, really just uncomfortable to look at uh, as a child, that uh, Bill Sienkiewicz art. But uh, I've come to really appreciate and adore the stuff. So, uh, yeah, what did I know, you know? Back to comics. Doug is chilling at the sextant. I I guess maybe he's more brooding than chilling, but he's here. That's all we need to know. He's soon joined by Mondo with a belly full of Krakoa. Now remember, Krakoa can communicate through Mondo. It's just kind of gross when he does. Now, the island once again suggests Doug, you know, duck out of this contest. You even offers to hide him out somewhere. Saturnine won't be able to find him. It won't be pleasant, Krakoa says, but it is possible. Now, Doug admits that he's terrified at the prospect of dying in battle, but this is something he's just got to do. We shift ahead to another sparring session with Ilyana, where it would appear that Doug is doing much better at holding his own. Of course, it's uh, revealed pretty much immediately that magic is going easy on him to help bolster his self-confidence. He knows it, she confirms it. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Now we wrap up with Doug taking his spot at the X of Swords action figure display playset, with some words from Ilyana where she tells Doug that, uh, well, basically there's no way he's going to survive this. Uh, she says, if you lift your sword in Otherworld, it'll be the last thing you ever do, which is uh, uh, not not motivational speaking. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but uh, that's where we leave it. Next, uh, we're going to head up to the satellite with Cable and uh, his folks, so uh, look forward to that. But I guess we should talk about this issue of New Mutants. It was fine. It was okay. <laughs> it wasn't a bad issue. Uh not a whole lot to talk about, though. I think this issue went exactly the way it was going to go, right? There was not, there weren't very many surprises here. Uh, this was just kind of a, a means to an end. We know Doug's one of the chosen. We know Warlock's his sword. We know Doug is not suited for combat, so we gotta do something with him. And uh, that's exactly what we uh, what we did here. Um, let's take some takeaways here. Uh, Doug being honor bound, right? Um, I mentioned it during the synopsis here, you know, when when people write Doug, they try to, I don't want to say overcompensate, because, I mean, he has a really great power, it's just not useful um, in all situations. And I don't understand the fascination with making it so Doug, like he's on a, an equal playing field with the, you know, the fighting characters, where, I mean, we've seen, we've seen instances recently We've had to, I mean, we're dealing with Russia constantly in these books. And we saw Boom Boom try to try to translate Russian and, and did a decent enough job at it. But without Doug there, I mean, they were kind of just stuck. So we're not, it's like we're not making the other characters at the same level of Doug intellectually or with not fighting related powers. I, I'm, I don't know if I'm making sense here. I just feel like everybody has their niche. But we've spent so much time trying to make Doug's more all-encompassing useful than just as useful as he is, because he is very, very useful. I do appreciate that he's honor-bound to do this, right? Um, and I gotta say, I don't... I'm not a, you know, fake-ass comics historian as it pertains to Doug Ramsey so much. I've read uh, pretty much all of his appearances, but a lot of it just kind of melds together, right? I mean, he's already died, didn't he? I think. <laughs> I don't know if they retconned that out, but I, I know I saw him dead. I know I saw Warlock carrying his body around trying to reanimate him. I know we read that and we enjoyed that. But uh, I don't remember... 
I don't know how he came back. Was it during that Necrotia thing? I don't know. But I know we had, like, Douglock uh, over in Excalibur during the 90s. We had that really, really weird uh, Warlock ongoing... Well, it was an it was uh, allegedly an ongoing series uh, out of the Marvel M-Tech line, that short-lived line of uh, comics with uh, X-51 and Deathlock. And then Doug was just, like, back with New Mutants Volume 3. And we're going to talk a little bit more about New Mutants Volume 3 in a bit here, as I think... I recall that being a really good use of Doug in that rather than trying to force him into combat roles, they really just got, they just really went zany with his translation powers here. They used some very imaginative ways to make to make him more uh, useful, and it actually did lead to him being more useful in combat situations, but we're going to get to that in just a bit. Uh, Warlock. Let's talk about Warlock here. He's the worst kept secret on the island, right? I don't know why. Like, uh, I don't know why he's a secret. Why is Doug sneaking him and smuggling him around here? Especially when, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, Doug doesn't have a techno-organic arm, but he does now? It's bizarre. Um, I can't remember which issue it was, but I could have sworn we actually saw Doug sort of, like, upload or infect Krakoa with some techno-organics? I don't think I dreamt that. I think it might have... Maybe it was the Nova Roma issue? I don't know, but uh, I suppose that might be a reason why it's a secret, you know? Uh, that he's doing something maybe not so much nefarious, or just behind the back of the, the members of the Quiet Council. Don't know. Don't know, especially when, I mean, everybody seems to know that Warlock's there, and they're just kind of... Being polite to Doug, I, I really don't know. Um, the upload here, uh, that might, maybe that'll be revealed as one of the reasons why our characters are acting so weird. Like maybe there's a hint at a post-human future or some sort of a hive mind or something. Am I thinking too much about a throwaway scene that I might have just misunderstood or misread or made up in my own mind? I don't know. Um, I also remember. That weird scene of Cyclops seeing Doug and Warlock chatting, and then like one panel later, Cypher was sitting alone. I don't think I dreamt that, but I, do, I really don't know. I have flipped through the uh, the X of Swords handbook, which there will be an episode on um, eventually, as soon as my life gets settled down there, that I'm going to be putting that together. But there is mention of Warlock being a secret, and it we're promised that it'll eventually be revealed as to why, so... I guess we could just uh, stick everything I just said in the in the theory pile, good or bad. It'll just sit there and wait until we find out. Um, Ilyana, let's talk about Ilyana for a minute. Um, I don't like her. <laughs> I don't like her characterization here. I mean, I get what she's going for, but I mean, she feels like, and this might be intentional. I I, I didn't live Ilyana while she was magic the first time. I've mentioned that, um, but. It feels like she has, like, no humanity here. She's just this, like, fighting machine, a killing machine, a, uh... uh, It feels... I mean, this might sound like a weird thing to say, but she almost feels like... Like we talk about the the Claremont strong female character, right? This take on magic, uh, this, like, kind of bully take on magic, it feels almost like a parody of the, the, you know, the classic Claremont strong female protagonist. It's, I don't know, it's it's off-putting to me. I, I I just don't know. Very very standoffish, 
just doesn't doesn't have it lacks heart and i mean that very well could be the the you know the uh, point that uh, is just soaring over my thick dome i don't know but uh, i don't like it uh finally um back to that uh new mutants volume 3 take on doug something that i wanted to bring up here is that they got very very creative with what doug could translate right we saw him like uh, doing like computer coding Right, we saw him do that. We saw him do all sorts of different languages, and one of the languages that he was sort of getting a handle on was body language, being able to read body language, which would make him more useful in battle situations. And I don't know if that's been walked back. I don't know if maybe they just haven't thought to bring it back. Maybe that would just take a lot of the wind out of the uh, out of the drama of this arc, but. Doug, in a combat situation, if he's able to read body language, he should be a step ahead of whoever he's taking on, or at least on a level playing field with. Despite his lack of combat training and, uh, you know, just combat knowledge, he should be able to read body language and know or have a good idea of what his opponent is, uh, is thinking and what they're going to do. We don't get a mention of that. Maybe it'll come up during the fight. I don't know who, who he's going to be pitted up against, but uh, maybe body language will be a factor in the upcoming duel. Uh, Warlock, as a sword, is he limited to just being a sword? You know, uh, we've seen in the past that Warlock has turned himself into armor for Doug. Will we see... Will, will Warlock be able to do that? Is that against the rules of Saturnine's contest? Can Warlock... Just start changing shapes. Can Warlock turn into a gun? Can Warlock turn into a cannon? Can Warlock do whatever it is a Warlock can do during that battle? Is it just that we need Doug and Warlock as the combatant, and they can just do whatever the hell they want? I'm looking forward to seeing if that's the case, or if or if a Warlock's going to be locked into this uh, sword form for the duration. I guess uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. And uh, I mean, we are almost at the halfway point here, so. I guess it won't be too long now. But uh, as far as the issue overall, uh, it was beautiful, of course. It was Rod Reese. It was a very, very nice-looking book. Um, and it was probably the strongest uh, Ed Brisson issue to this point. So not a bad issue. Not a bad issue. Um, a decent enough chapter. I do like that they mentioned the Hellions doing their trek through Otherworld. Uh, really makes this, you know makes it feel sequential. And uh, I was worried that it wasn't, especially after reading that uh, that two-part Wolverine story where that just feels like it happened on its own whenever it wanted to. So it's nice that we're getting, you know, some cohesive, uh, some connective tissue throughout our chapters and throughout the uh, line here. So good enough issue. Good enough issue. Uh, looking forward to Cable next time out. But uh, I think that's all I have to say about New Mutants number 13. Now, before we go, let's head into the mailbag here. We just got one letter today, and it's from Damien, and he's talking about Giant Size X-Men Storm number one. Now, he says, The thing that really confuses me about Giant Size X-Men is the fact that, as you say, they could have all been regular issues of X-Men. You talk about how they spun off as a separate story to rinse an extra $25 from the fans, but Giant Size sells far worse than X-Men. Surely Marvel would have made more money had they double-shipped X-Men with a special longer issue drawn by Russell Dodderman. It seems like Marvel's being, uh, oh boy, you would make me say this on the air, avaricious? <laughs> it seems like Marvel's being avaricious, but doing it badly. 
we could very easily be up to X-Men number 16 by folding Giant Size into that run. And that's a great point. That's an excellent point here. I didn't even consider that uh, Giant Size would obviously sell worse than the main you know, flagship of the, of the line here. And obviously, you know, with the X, the inflated price and the focus on a singular character, despite you know how popular they might be, it's it's a harder sell than a standard. You know, this is the next number in the flagship. You know, uh, a volume. So yeah, that's a great point. Which makes me wonder why why in the hell they did it this way to begin with. It's so weird. So weird, and I mean, it doesn't help that it was pointless <laughs> for the most part. Uh, Damien continues, It's frustrating that Hickman keeps setting up so many things that don't come to fruition. We talk about Chris Claremont and his dangling plot lines, but he would never use an entire issue solely to set up something that he's going to ignore. This is what forces us to make up our own headcanon. He just keeps setting up more mysteries, and we're expected to be willing to read stories that are incomplete. Every issue of Giant Size X-Men set up something new. Even this issue was more about setting up the consciousness that Doug talks to at the end than it was about Storm. As I reread along with you, I started to think about who or what that could be, and thinking if uh, thinking about if it was a birth of something from the powers of X futures. That very well could be, right? I mean, we just talked a little bit about um, you know Doug and Warlock, and the whether or not I dreamt it or not, the upload into Krakoa of techno-organics here, and maybe that is something setting up some sort of future. We also have Doug talking to this uh, weird little critter in the uh, in the world, and maybe that's going to set something up. It's we're getting a lot of uh, we're getting a lot of batter. We just uh, we haven't made any pancakes yet, right? It's uh, we're getting a lot of stuff though. Uh, Damien continues. Then I got to the part of the episode where you were responding to my X Factor feedback. You were saying fairly that if the behaviors of the characters only work in X-Factor by applying headcanon, then the story is failing, and it got me thinking. Why am I willing to criticize Leah Williams, Benjamin Percy, and Teeny Howard for the fact that I have to provide half the story, but I give a free pass to Hickman when he does the same thing? Is it solely because he has a reputation for long runs that follow a plan? I don't know if I should be giving less benefit of the doubt to Hickman or more to the new guys. Either way, I think I've been unfair in some of my responses. This then made me think of the review discussion you had. I follow loads of comics creators on Twitter, and I generally wonder if my responses to their social media affects how I respond to their work. For example, I follow Leah Williams on Twitter, and based on her post, I think she, I think I would like her in person. Do I let that color how I respond to her writing? Am I less critical of things in her stories than I would be of something written by Dan Slott, as an example of someone who I think comes across as insufferable on Twitter? I actually don't know, so it's hard to be genuinely objective. That's a very good question, and I mean, that's something that I've thought about for as long as I've been doing this. I mean, I've been reviewing stuff uh, improfessionally, unprofessionally, amatorily (laughs) for the past five years now, and you get a feel pretty quick for how um, the rest of the reviewing hive mind are going to uh, receive certain stories, certain books, based on who's writing it and who's uh, who's on, who, what the creative team is. Because there are folks out there, there are professionals out there who are more active on social media and more apt to give you the pat on the head if you say something nice about their work. And they're the ones who get better reviews. I mean, there is a direct causality between the two. It is a very, very strong cause and effect. Tom King will pat you on the head, so 
professional reviewers are going to give Tom King the 10 out of 10. A great writer like Jeff Lemire is, is more quiet on, on social media, so people are more willing to give him the 8 out of 10 or the 7 out of 10. And I think that that's just something that, uh, I mean, it doesn't speak to the uh, integrity of the reviewing process, but it does speak to the um, nature of social media, I guess, and the fact that we are so close to these creators now, and we really, really shouldn't be. And it's really not something I even like to talk about, but um, considering that uh, noted Twitter coward uh, Al Ewing is about to enter our purview after uh, X of Swords, uh, we'll probably be talking about that a little bit more in the uh, not-so-distant future. <laughs> but uh, Damien continues. Moving on to the what-if discussion. I always found X-Men Forever to be a very odd series. The ultimate problem is that the good Claremont X-Men was never about him doing whatever he wanted. It was about him working with someone else who inspired him. Whether that was someone he was chafing against like John Byrne or Bob Harris, or someone he was in harmony with like Dave Cockrum, Louise Simonson, or Anne Nascenti. X-Men Forever was crippled by being a Claremont project that everyone else just went along with. Boom. Perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And, uh... It reminds me of uh, one of the old uh, pro-wrestling anecdotes from the late 1990s um, where a writer from the WWE went over to WCW uh, in order to like say, reinvigorate, right? Reinvigorate the, uh, the ratings and just get people excited about the product again after the pendulum had swung the other direction. And this writer... Um, he worked within a uh, you know a closed system where he was and had to filter had, you know his work was filtered through several channels before it made it to its final you know form but when he went to this new company people just assumed he was a bulletproof genius and his work went direct from his pen to the television so a lot of people saw the uh the uneven <laughs> uneven quality that he was uh, actually responsible for and how you do need boundaries, right? You, I, I mean, I can go into a whole other tangent now that also concerns John Byrne when uh, they, when Marvel and DC they all like stepped away from the Comics Code Authority, and John Byrne was not so much outspoken, but he kind of played devil's advocate because he's John Byrne, and that's kind of what John Byrne does. And he was talking about how uh, you know this creative freedom by not having to work within the constraints of the Comics Code Authority might be, you know, a cursed chalice in some ways, where you look over the years, the the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the 80s, everything that was in the Comics Code Authority are the classic stories. They're the stories that we still talk about now. They were all done within the, the you know, the uh, dictatorial uh, constraints of the Comics Code Authority. And he was talking about how, you know, you remove those things and you, you remove a level of creativity, and it's easy to just poo-poo John Byrne as being a contrarian, but if you stop and think about it, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, you have to be creative in order to kind of kind of toe the line and push the envelope at the same time. And I feel like with Claremont on X-Men Forever, and I think I mentioned this when we brought it up last time, it was basically a case of we've got Claremont under contract to do two books a month, and uh, where can we put him where he ain't going to break anything? So they put him in his own corner. They said, do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> Nobody's going to bother you. 
And what we got was some very, very uninspired stuff where if the main continuity zigged, he zagged, if for no other reason than to be different. So uh, not a good book, not a good look. Uh, Damien continues. Personally, I can't see a way of returning the X-Men to the past that doesn't ruin everything. They either had to lose their memories or go into an alternate timeline. As a reboot, it would throw out too much important stuff and would only make X-Men continuity more complex. Now, what Damien's referring to is the um, question that I posed during X-Lapse the Nation, which is our look, our Sunday special, where we're looking at the X-Termination miniseries from 2018, where the time-displaced original five are sent back to where they came from. At least I think so. We're not through with it yet, so I don't know exactly where they came from. They muddled with this, or they mucked with this, I should say, throughout the six or seven years that the original five time-displaced characters were in the present. Uh, They ended one of the volumes of All New X-Men with them going back to the past and seeing themselves there already, which made everyone think that they were from a different timeline. So they could find out a whole bunch of stuff here, go back to where they actually came from, and not affect anything. I think that changed a few times. I think that uh, I think they ran kind of hot and cold with that. And if what I think is going to happen actually happens, um, these are the original five from the six one six continuity. But they uh, they almost have to be mind wiped uh, of their time in the present before they go back. So the question that I had posed during those episodes is: What could happen? Should they go back to the past if they are from the 616 uh, timeline with the knowledge that uh, of, of things like Dark Phoenix, of things like Cable being born, of things like Madeline Pryor? What would happen to the present day if our characters went back with the foreknowledge of that? It's, you know, the whole Back to the Future 2 thing where it's like, you know what's going to happen, so you can either turn into it or you can avoid it. And my question was... What could happen? I mean, it's not something we'll ever have to deal with, but uh, I, I was just, you know, floating floating a question out there to see what kind of answers we got. And But I do totally agree that if they did do this as a reboot, no matter how much sense it would have made in canon, it would have really muddled things up. It would have been, a, it would have been like uh, Spider-Man One More Day on steroids, where, I mean, that messed up a lot of stuff. That made a lot of stuff not make sense anymore. That made a lot of historians just bash their heads into the de- their desks. But uh, I think if we did it with the X-Men, it would be even worse. Even worse than that. Uh, Damien continues. Sometimes I do wish for a reboot to simplify or fix certain elements, but the danger is that you take away good stuff with the bad. If you'd asked me pre-Hoxpox, I would have wanted to remove Cable and Quanon, reinstate the original plans for Sinister and Apocalypse, excise Origin from continuity, as well as making Sabretooth Wolverine's father and Mystique and Destiny Nightcrawler's parents. In doing this, I would have removed two of the best current X-Books and made the Resurrection Protocols and X of Tens impossible. And that's the problem with reboots. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's kind of a... I mean, this goes back to a conversation we had a while ago with the uh, the contentious skin in the game comment, where it's like, if we do decide to do this, then all of these decisions are going to be made by whoever's at the at the you know whoever's in the captain's chair at that moment. 
You know, it, it, we're, we are going to be beholden to their take on X-Men continuity from from then to eternity, right? And that's a dangerous thing. And like you said, we risk losing the good with the bad, and good and bad are, are subjective. So it's like, who knows what could happen had that change, or any change. I mean, we... For all we know, we're button up against that change as we speak with the, uh, you know, Mora's 10th life here. We don't know what might happen if, if that is the ending we're headed to. You know, if that's the, the slot that the, the little Plinko chip is going to head toward at the end of the, uh, the Dawn of X, Reign of X, Hickman run. I mean, it could be, uh, it could be harrowing and, uh. It might, uh, maybe it'll turn us all off, and then in ten years we'll come back for uh, X lapsed round two, <laughs> you know, because we will have all stopped reading the books after that point. But uh, that's something we'll worry about then. <laughs> I think that'll uh, wrap up the mailbag here. If anybody out there would like to be part of the mailbag, I invite you to write in. Uh, you could find me very easily on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an old-fashioned email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfinitearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisoninfinitearths.com. You can join in the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to a whole bunch of comic book noise at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. I think we are just shy of one-third of the way through X of Tens now, so... uh we can all pat ourselves on the back for uh, running the first leg of this triathlon. <laughs> I think we uh, we get on a bike for the next uh, the next third. Either that or we swim. I don't know the order. Maybe there is no order. We'll just do what we're doing and uh, and hope for the best. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Searching